I'm Sarah Marshall, and I'm talking to you by myself right now because Mike is off doing some research for our upcoming and very exciting next episode. We are giving you a rerun this week. I just wanted to take a second to tell you about it. It is the tale of the moment when Dan Quayle went after Murphy Brown. I have a theory that episodes we made sometime before March of 2020 have a much lower chance of being ones that a random audience member has heard already because for whatever reason we got a lot of new listeners in spring of last year hard to say why and this is one of the ones that we made in the past that i think is a a really good one it's one of my favorites and also one that isn't a complete downer and honestly those are hard to come by and so i wanted to offer this to you guys as a little summer into fall rerun and I hope you're doing great. And we have a new episode for you coming up after this one. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Uh, and without giving too much away, I will say that it is a topic people have been requesting since day one. And I'll let you figure it out from there. Yeah, there were a lot of boilerplate sitcoms like that in the 80s. Like, you know, Hello, Larry was a show like that. You ever watch that? Yeah. It's about a single dad who moves to Portland with his daughters, and it's like, Portland is a long way from L.A. Because you fucked up your life. Yeah. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the show where we expose the sordid truth behind Nick at Night. <laughs> I just thought of that. Is that what we do? I don't know. Are we? I mean, Dan Quayle is pretty sorted, man. I feel like this explains all the differences between us, that you had cable growing up and I didn't. You had video games. That's true. Yes. I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm working on a book about the satanic panic. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash you're wrong about. And today we're talking about Dan Quayle versus Murphy Brown. Mm-hmm. Which I'm extremely excited about because... I don't know if you even know this about me. Mm. I love Murphy Brown and I love really? Murphy Brown when I was a teenager. Yes. I have the Faith Ford cookbook. <laughs> Faith Ford played Corky on uh, Murphy Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They started airing it on, on Nick at Night or something, some cable channel when I was 16. And I remember sitting on the couch oh. studying for the SATs and watching Murphy Brown. And I was like, wow, a show about a woman who yells at people. <laughs> You know, because it's all about like Murphy Brown. She's a no nonsense newswoman in 80s DC and she yells at her guests. Yeah. She's like this confrontational, flinty, waspy Candace Bergen. Do you remember the controversy? Do you remember 1992 when all this happened? I never saw those episodes, but I know that Murphy Brown had a baby mm -hmm. as a single mother. Mm -hmm. And what I know is that Dan Quayle. <laughs> decided for some reason to attack Murphy Brown, a television show, yes. for depicting Candace Bergen having a baby without getting married first. Yes. And thanks to this controversy, he reached the lowest ever approval rating for a vice president in modern American history. Wow. This was not a good strategic move on his part. Interesting. So tell me... Take me on this journey. Well, I feel weird about this because I've always had like a weird sympathy for Dan Quayle. Interesting. It is a theme of this show that uh -huh. people are more than the worst mistake they've ever made. Yes. And the spelling bee thing. Yeah. For people who do not know, he misspelled the word potato when he was judging a spelling bee in 1992 during the election campaign. And yeah. it became the defining feature of his public life. He's still super bitter about it. There's a whole chapter in his memoir about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would be too, because people just roasted him about that. Yeah, and it always felt to me like if it's a politician that you like, you wouldn't actually care if they misspelled something. And like, right. I don't actually think that spelling is particularly correlated with intelligence. It's not. That's why you don't think that. <laughs> it always just seemed a little bit unfair to me. But thanks to researching this episode, I now have a dozen legitimate reasons to dislike Dan Quayle. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> but I want to start with Murphy Brown, with Murphy Brown having a baby. This is basically how this entire thing starts. Mm -hmm. Do you remember May Sweeps? Do you remember what Sweeps was? Oh, yeah. That was when the sitcoms would be like, we adopted Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, yeah. We traveled through time. Yeah, yes. it was great. It was one of the little rain dances of uh, American television in the 90s. Yes. So basically, there were four times per year when television 
shows would set the ad rates for the rest of the year. Oh, is that why they did that? I yeah. think I just thought it was like a sort of ratings Olympics that everyone had for fun. De facto, it was. But of course, because you're setting the ad rates for the rest of the year, of course, you want to do the biggest stunts imaginable during these times so you can charge more for ads. Right. Do you know if The Wedding of Luke and Laura was a sweeps week broadcast? Well, this is the thing. This says so much about us as a country that the three most reliable things you could do during sweeps month was have a baby, get married, or kill someone. <laughs> these are the three things that Americans respond to. These are the three pillars of straight society. Exactly. <laughs> and when I started researching this, I was thinking that Murphy Brown had had a baby due to, you know, social justice, wokeness, like I'm a single mom, gonna have a baby type of things. But like, it was sweeps month. Like it was the middle of May. They did it on May 18th. They did it to boost ratings. That makes sense. As early as January, they had started hyping this. Hmm. I've been reading on these old transcripts from like CBS this morning on LexisNexis. And they're all like, you know, unless you've been hiding under a rock, surely you know <laughs> that Murphy Brown is having a baby. Like this was a super hyped thing. Okay. Do you think there was a sense of like, wow, career women can have babies like we never knew before? Yeah. And also, I mean, it was the number one TV show. Really? Yes. I had no idea. I thought I was kind of a weirdo for liking it. No, it was massive. Yeah. Candace Bergen won Emmys for playing Murphy Brown so many times, she asked them not to nominate her anymore. I think it does say something really good about late 80s and 90s, early 90s America, that all these terrible things are happening, you know. Anita Hill, Amy Fisher, and, and so many awful things we've talked about that reveal that America's understanding of gender was just like dangerously medieval. Mm. And yet at the same time, America was like, oh, that Candace Bergen, I just love watching her be assertive. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, the story was she's kind of seeing this guy. He's an anti-apartheid campaigner because this is before 94, right? So South Africa's still under apartheid. Right. He meets Murphy Brown somehow. They end up sleeping together. She gets pregnant. She tells him, this is your baby. And he basically says, well, sorry, South Africa is too important to me. I'm not going to stay around and help raise the baby. Wow. Murphy Brown had a baby as a single mom because of apartheid. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. And so it's this whole big thing where he basically leaves. She decides to have the baby anyway. And it's not really controversial at the time. Like, I looked for old op-eds and things saying, like, this is disgusting. Yeah, everyone was like, that is classic Murphy Brown. And it's under the rubric of sweeps, right? It's just kind of like a stunt. Everybody really liked, like, it's an extremely likable character. So it's fine yeah. she would be having a baby. They've handled it. They've handled the pregnancy really well. I think Pat Buchanan wrote an article about it, but no one sort of real is mad about it. <laughs> Like, no one in the White House, no one who's looked at as, like, a significant voice in Congress or what have you? No. Mm -hmm. So May 18th, 1992, Murphy Brown has the baby. It's the most watched television event of the entire month. Wow. May 19th, the next day, is when Dan Quayle gives his speech criticizing her. Is he like, I am in the Rose Garden and I don't think Murphy Brown should have had a baby? Or <laughs> is it in the context of something else? Well, this is the thing. So... First of all, this is in the middle of a political campaign. Oh, right. It's 92. So, of yeah. course, that's just, you know, they're going to talk about something that week. Yes. And what we've totally forgotten about now is that at the time, Bush and Quayle are coming in second in the polls after, not Clinton, Ross Perot. Oh, my God. We totally forgot that as a country. He was doing really well for a while. He was getting a month after this controversy. He was getting 37% in the polls. Oh, my God. And most of the votes that he was pulling were from Quayle and Bush. They were losing their minds because right. they had always had this sort of, you know, fiscal conservative, sort of old school conservative, like cutting government spending, responsible government, responsible economics type of framing. Mm -hmm. And he stole all of that. Ah, Basically, Bush and Quayle are getting increasingly desperate. And so they decide to attack America's most beloved Candace Bergen. Well, this is the thing is that Ross Perot isn't really making a case on any sort of cultural, social issues. He's just making a case on economic issues. And so mm. Bush and Quayle have lost that argument. They can't really say, oh, we're going to be the fiscally responsible president. So what they do is they have to change their message to something that is going to be more socially relevant for people. So what they mm. decide to do behind the scenes, and it seems like this is actually a Dan Quayle joint, like this is something that he <laughs> decided sort of without 
the approval of H.W. Bush was he wanted to make the campaign much more about family values. Because uh. that was an area where Ross Perot wasn't really saying anything and Bill Clinton had already been busted for Jennifer Flowers. Mm. So it made a lot of sense for the Republicans to then say, well, we're the pure ones. We're the moral ones. Right. We're standing up for values and family and traditions. And it was all they had left. Because Bush famously was like the candidate in 88 who said, read my lips, no new taxes. And yeah. then he imposed new taxes. So he lost his only piece, you know, maybe not his only piece, but certainly one of his most significant pieces of credibility in yeah. his first term. And that's what Perot is hammering them on over and right. over again. And so they have to change the grounds of the battle to something completely different. And so Dan Quayle gets this idea of making it more about traditional families. Tell me about Dan Quayle as a human being. So... What's interesting about Dan Quayle, and I think this is really important for how the speech is received later, is that everyone already hates Dan Quayle. Like, Dan <laughs> Quayle is someone who, from basically the beginning of his career, has always been seen as an intellectual lightweight. Mm. So Dan Quayle gets elected in 1971. He's a member of the House of Representatives for two terms. His jam is he always runs as a populist and then governs as just a standard Republican. Mm. So he gets elected over and over, promising, I'm a Washington outsider. I'm against this culture of graft in Washington, blah, blah, blah. In his first election, he puts out a platform of anti-busing, mm. anti-welfare, and anti-big government. Yikes. Who's he representing? Uh, Indiana. Oh, Indiana. Yeah. So that's where he grows up. Yeah. And then the minute he's in office, he just votes for every Republican thing and like completely drops this whole I'm a Washington outsider thing. Oh, Dan. <laughs> it's not clear that he ever had any legislative projects or achievements. You feel that he was kind of a, like a cookie cutter example, at least in his behavior and reputation of like just these sort of men that seem to come out of political machine dispensers in America in the 80s. Yes. Mm. I was trying so hard to find something about him to make him likable or personable. <laughs> and like, I failed at my mission. I did not find anything that like set him apart. Not everyone can be like Lee Atwater and have a, you know, a, a terrible childhood trauma that's immediately understandable as awful. There's rumors that he's cheating on his wife. Mm. He also apparently dodged the draft. There's a couple little scandals. But his main scandals throughout his entire political career, even as he enters the Senate, a couple terms in the Senate. He just makes gaffe after gaffe. So right. one of the things he says is, I made a misstatement and I stand by all of my misstatements. He also does these weird Mobius strip twisty sentences where he's like, we don't want to go back to tomorrow. We must move forward to today. Hmm. They're almost like tone poems. <laughs> It is really nice. You can think about that and be like, hmm. One of his colleagues says he's personable, he's handsome, he's fun to be around, and he's a quarter of an inch deep. Oh. He had great hair, didn't he? He had like a nice head of hair. Yeah, nice head of hair. He's got a beautiful family. Wait, I'm going to look at a picture of Dan Quayle right now. Hmm. Yeah. He does have kind of a Kennedy jaw. Yes. He had a face unlined by concern of any kind. Yes. <laughs> Right. He basically looked like Liam Neeson's child in Love Actually. <laughs> he did. He did look like that kid. And he would have chased a woman down in an airport and thought it was romantic. Right. Yes. That's classic uh. Dan Quayle. <laughs> yeah. He has that energy. And you just have the sense of like, if only he hadn't had such a lovely head of hair, he wouldn't have been given so many responsibilities Seriously. he wasn't ready for. Yes. And so he's kind of a dark horse candidate for VP. Mm. It's a little bit weird that H.W. Bush picks him as the VP in 1988. Do you think he does that to pull focus from his own unlikability? A little bit. I mean, the main reason, looking back, is that this is back at a time when politicians from Republican and Democratic parties were both aiming at the center, like the median mm. voter. They were both trying to pull voters from the other side of the aisle. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about Dan Quayle at the time was that he was very appealing to the Christian right. Like mm. the Christian right really liked him. Why did the Christian right like him? He did talk about family values stuff. He appeared publicly with his family a lot. He talked about his Christianity a lot. He talked about, mm. you know, the scripture teaches us, et cetera, et cetera. He right. was someone that referred to his Christian faith quite a bit. And Christians are a really big voting block in America. Huge. Yeah, exactly. And the Republicans were only really just waking up to how big of a deal the Christians mm. could be. But then he was also somebody who appealed to the center. So he wasn't mm. like 
some sort of weirdo, like Jim Baker type of figure who was divisive. He was mm-hmm. someone who the Christian right liked, but he was also acceptable to sort of middle America. So mm-hmm. George H.W. Bush brought him on to kind of straddle these two groups. So he was a really useful strategic alliance creator. Yes. And I just want to take a slight detour to talk about the spelling bee incident, okay? which actually happened after the Murphy Brown thing. It's one month afterwards, but it's still in the middle of the same presidential campaign. So people are already just like annoyed with Dan Quayle and looking for any reason to be like, ugh. I mean, like any gaffe, right? It plays upon beliefs that people already hold. So right. people already think he's kind of stupid. He's kind of a lightweight. He's kind of bumbling. And then he goes to the school. The kid has to spell potato. The kid spells it correctly. And then Dan Quayle says, you forgot the E at the end. Weirdly, this isn't actually a scandal until hours later. This all happens. It's all on camera. And then later there's a press conference and they ask him like, oh, what are you going to do about, you know, trade with Japan and like, you know, normal questions. And then at the end of the press conference, one of the journalists asks, Mr. Vice President, how do you spell potato? Oh, no. And everybody bursts out laughing. Yeah. And basically (laughs) because this little photo op just didn't produce any actual news. All of the news organizations just went with Dan Quayle misspells potato. Right, because it's the most interesting thing that happened that day. Yeah, exactly. And also the kid, whose name is Miguel Figueroa, the kid afterwards calls him an idiot. How old was the kid? He's 12. I also love salty 12-year-old quotes. Right? (laughs) I mean, the kid is cool. The kid goes on Letterman, Mm -hmm. and he takes back the idiot quote. He's like, you know, I was a little too strong. He's not an idiot, but he might need to study more. Do you know if you have to go to college to be vice president? So he's just like accidentally dragging him even farther. Yes, but it just demonstrates the extent to which the seeds were planted for Dan Quayle. Yeah. This was not a credible messenger for any campaign promise at all. Yeah. So when and where does he talk about Murphy Brown? Yes. So, okay, rewinding one month. Back to today. No, back to tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going back to tomorrow. But so back to May 19th, 1992, the second twist of the speech that is completely forgotten about now Mm. is that it's a 40-minute speech. It's given to the Mm -hmm. Commonwealth Club of California. It's a campaign event? Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's like, we want this to be like the new tone, the new message for our campaign. So there's a lot of eyes on this to begin with. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, he only mentions Murphy Brown once. Hmm. The speech is not about single families. It's not even about family values. It's about the L.A. riots. What? Yes. What? Right? Whoa. April 29th, three weeks previously, the Uh L.A. riots had happened. I had no idea. Basically, the country is in the middle of a moral panic about what caused the L.A. riots. What's going on in urban America? Wait, did Murphy Brown cause the L.A. riots? I thought it was the savage beating of Rodney King, a black man who was brutally assaulted by the Los Angeles police, who were known for decades to have been incredibly violent toward the black citizens of their city. Dan Quayle disagrees with your analysis. Dan Quayle would like you to know that it's actually... (laughs) It's not solely Murphy Brown's fault. But she's part of it? (laughs) Yeah, and this is what's so fascinating. We're blaming Murphy Brown for the L.A. riots before we blame the Los Angeles Police Department? Yes! So after all of the cops are acquitted for beating Rodney King, of which there is footage, which we have all seen, and is extremely disturbing and extremely clear that they are viciously beating this guy. Yeah. So the night that that happens, the LA riots begin, H.W. Bush gives a, what he calls an unqualified endorsement of the jury's decision. Wow. So there's questions about what he's doing in urban America, how he's responding to the riots, what caused the riots immediately. Mm -hmm. After he endorses the jury's decision, he also says, the court system has worked. What's needed now is calm and respect for the law. Everyone calm down. And if you just continue to follow the rules and mm-hmm. be randomly assaulted, we will get to you. Yes. There are enough lifeboats for everyone in steerage. And this is the thing. So he's already got Perot nipping at his heels in this campaign. He's got the L.A. riots, which makes him look terrible. He mm-hmm. ends up issuing eight different public statements in the course of three days. He is extremely unpopular for this. He looks terrible. So Dan Quayle, what he says now is that he basically took it upon himself to try to swing the campaign back to this family values message and explain the L.A. riots 
through the degradation of the American family. So what is his argument? How does this work? So essentially his argument is there's a decline of morals in American society. Urban poverty is caused by welfare. It's caused by a culture of poverty. He says, I believe the lawless social anarchy, which we saw, is directly related to the breakdown of family structure, personal responsibility, and social order in far too many areas of our society. For the poor, the situation is compounded by a welfare ethos that impedes individual efforts to move ahead in society and hampers their ability to take advantage of the opportunities America offers. So we're giving people too much welfare and their ability to take care of themselves and act on their own behalf is being degraded and we have to give less money exactly. to people who need it. He's basically saying we've been too nice mm. to the urban poor in America. Well, everyone says that about America. It's a country that is too nice to the poor, <laughs> legendarily. Yes. Right? That's our reputation. You know, and he acknowledges racism, right? So he says okay. there's no question this country has a terrible problem with race and racism. The evil mm -hmm. of slavery has left a long legacy. But we've mm. faced racism squarely and we've made progress in the last quarter century. So he points to, you know, the creation of a black middle class. Things are better for black people in 1992 than they were in 1964. The civil rights movement worked. So essentially, mm -hmm. you know, I don't understand why African-Americans would be mad. Why are you complaining? Yeah. Slavery was only a few generations ago. Yes, everything is fine. And then he immediately pivots to talking about the culture is the problem. So he says, during this period of progress, we have also developed a culture of poverty. Some people call it an underclass that is far more violent and harder oh to escape than it was a generation ago. And this is the rhetoric that is forming, you know, in the American political arena that is allowing for the creation of crack babies. Totally. And this is used as an excuse to write absolutely genocidal stuff about these children. And we can say, well, the crack babies are being born. There's this underclass. They are making bad choices. Totally. I and mean, that's exactly the rhetoric. And what's interesting is at no point in the speech does he mention law enforcement. He doesn't even huh. give lip service to like, well, you know, we've got some bad officers in a couple of our police departments. He doesn't even do that. Right. I assume that Dan Quayle's speeches are kind of like the term paper of a 10th grader who wrote it at six in the morning on the day it was due, <laughs> where it's like, but surely, you know, and like, and in the end, the hustle and bustle, the land of contrasts, right? Yeah, yeah. He's talking about how people used to be able to escape from poverty, but now people are stuck in poverty. And so the underclass seems to be a new phenomenon. It is a group whose members are dependent on welfare for very long stretches and mm. whose men are often drawn into lives of crime. There is far too little upward mobility because the underclass is disconnected from the rules of American society. Oh my goodness. And these problems have, unfortunately, been particularly acute for black Americans. It's interesting, too, because he's admitting that poverty is a um, condition of life that really messes with your mental health. I know, right? And it's more difficult to escape than it used to be. That's true. But then he's also blaming it on the on the people in poverty that like, yeah. you know, it makes your life harder and it, it degrades your ability to function in the ways that you need to and want to, but it's your fault and you have to fix yeah, it. Yeah, and it's yeah, your yeah, fault yeah. that you're not fixing it. And at the same time that I'm admitting it's harmful, I'm blaming you more for remaining in yeah, it because yeah, yeah. it is harmful. Totally. What's really interesting in this section of the speech is that the only policies that he proposes to fix it are cutting welfare, like adding work oh requirements to welfare, making you have to apply for eight jobs a week, whatever. And... There's this program called Weed and Seed, which is uh -huh. terrible branding. Oh, so it's not a nonprofit that teaches people how to farm weed? Because that's what <laughs> I was hoping for somehow. <laughs> but it's basically you want to weed out all the bad people. That's like oh go God. in with harsh law enforcement tactics to get rid of the gang members, whatever. Because they're vermin growing in a place that's supposed to only have productive beings in it. And you have yes. to take rip them out and throw them away somehow. It's yes. really, it's rather apt, in fact. And then the seed part is you want to give, you know, opportunity grants and enterprise funds to like small business owners and job training and charter schools and these other things that are going to help like the good people. Uh-huh. But so what's, what's really interesting about that is this dichotomy that is everywhere in the speech between bad people and good people. And mm -hmm. the key to urban poverty is getting rid of the bad people. Oh, my God. And helping out the good people. And so <sighs> what it never acknowledges is that 
the bad people and the good people are the same people, right? That like every time you arrest somebody for yeah. whatever, selling a bag of weed, that's mm-hmm. a father. That's somebody who's paying half the rent with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. That's a son that's helping his parents out with their living expenses. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that you're just going to pull out the bad people and then finally, the good people will be able to thrive. Mm-hmm. You know, many people point this out later that it's like, that's not how anything works. There's always collateral damage, even if it's violent criminals that you're taking off the streets. Well, and of course, if you're if you're seeing entire communities as being somehow subhuman, mm-hmm. then you don't imagine that people live in kin communities just like yours and that families totally. suffer if family members are taken away, especially if they're providers just like yours. Yeah. I, I would argue that that more than welfare causes problems in people's lives. <laughs> yeah. And so after all of this, after he proposes, you know, cutting welfare, weed and seed, finally, we get to Murphy Brown. Oh, my God. So he pivots toward the very end of the speech <sighs> to family values. He talks about how boomers, I love that he blames boomers, despite the fact that he is a baby boomer. He yeah. says, many of our generation glamorized casual sex and drug use, evaded responsibility and trashed authority. I'm looking at you, the big chill. <laughs> <laughs> So he's essentially saying, you know, what's what really explains broken families. He loves to talk about broken families. Oh my god, Dan. Are that people just don't value families anymore. Right. It can't be the the criminal justice system. It's Murphy Brown. <laughs> exactly. It's that it's that non-traditional families, single mothers, are being glorified. Oh my god. So I'm gonna read the whole quote. It's kind of long. I wanna hear this whole goddamn thing. I know. <laughs> So he's talking about how, you know, there's all these broken families, kids growing up without fathers, mothers raising five, six kids because they get so much welfare for having extra kids, as we all know. (sighs) Yeah. So he says, ultimately, however, marriage is a moral issue that requires cultural consensus and the use of social sanctions. Bearing babies irresponsibly is simply wrong. Failing to support children one has fathered is wrong. We must be unequivocal about this. Marriage is a way of getting health insurance. It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown. A character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid, professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers by (gasps) bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. Did she call it that? No. I mean, I I don't know where he got that, but that's like like a thing. Designing Women had an episode where the Designing Women learned about AIDS, and I bet Dan Quayle just saw read about that one, too. I mean, there's also this thing, so it comes out later that Dan Quayle has never seen an episode of Murphy Brown. What? He's completely basing all of this on the hype, right? Like, he's, he's noticed the hype around this baby. But what's really interesting about this argument, he ends up talking about this Murphy Brown thing for the next couple months, is that at no point does he ever criticize the father. Right. There's never a point where he says, you know, morally speaking, a guy that is just like, oh, I fathered a baby with this woman that I was dating. I'm just going to bounce. I'm just going to go work on apartheid. (laughs) Yeah. He never actually criticizes the father for that in specific terms. He does criticize Murphy Brown for having the baby anyway. But as the producers of Murphy Brown point out almost immediately, What do you expect her to do? She finds out she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. She tells the father she's pregnant. He says, I'm not interested. Sweeps week. Murphy Brown has an abortion. (laughs) Exactly. Like, Dan Quayle is against abortions. It's not clear what she actually did wrong. Right. Aside from the fact that we shouldn't be blaming her for the L.A. riots, you know, what are we even blaming her for? (laughs) Was she supposed to put her child up for adoption? Was she supposed to marry some other guy? Is there a correct outcome? This feels like it connects to a lot of the American right arguments about what women can and can't do with their reproductive systems. So that's the speech, basically. Mm. Murphy Brown comes in right at the end. People point out afterwards that when he blames Hollywood and sort of this culture of decadence, Mm. it's the only place in the whole speech where he blames anyone other than poor people for their poverty. Mm, poor people and Hollywood liberals. I mean, literally, there's never, he never mentions wages. He never no. mentions lack of child care. So it's welfare and Murphy Brown. Basically, yeah. Dan. <laughs> so in one of the few times that this happens in our show ever, mm. the media response the next day is pretty dope. Mm. So his speech, because it's a big campaign speech, This leads all three of the network's news broadcasts the following night. Mm -hmm. The entire media, and Dan Quayle is still mad about this, the entire media focuses on Dan Quayle blames Murphy Brown for the L.A. riots. Like, that is the story immediately. Dan, 
You can't get mad at the news for noticing something that you did in your capacity as vice yes, president. Exactly. He still says to this day that he was misinterpreted. Well, what was he trying to say, according to him? Well, what he says now is, you know, they took me out of context because I wasn't blaming single moms, which is true. He was mm. blaming black single moms. <laughs> that was the context that was lost. So he's like, you misinterpreted me as saying something less horrible than what I actually <laughs> exactly. said. Like something much more sophisticated than my actual argument, which was completely abysmal. Uh, yeah, because it's like, oh, you misremembered me as being a pop culture reactionary instead of someone, you know, who's passionate about denying basic rights to people yeah. of color. Yes, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> so almost immediately, his approval rating starts to tank. 59% of the country disagree with his comments. It should be really much higher than that, but still, that's pretty good, considering that it's us. Yes. <laughs> I also love that Bush, H.W. Bush, throws him under the bus almost immediately. Oh, what does he do? Poppy! <laughs> so the next day, there's a press conference where Bush's press secretary is, of course, asked, what do you think of Dan Quayle's comments last night? And he says... We think Murphy Brown is an excellent program, and by having the baby, Murphy expressed a pro-life position. Uh-huh. Which is actually, like, kind of true. It's true. And also what, what Bush is able to do there, you'll notice, is they're like, what did you think of your vice president making these comments about, you know, how the L.A. riots were caused by decadent Hollywood liberalism and, you know, and, and also welfare and so on? Like, what do you think of that whole speech? And he's like, I love Murphy Brown. So, <laughs> end of conversation. It's like, yeah. what do you think of this scenario? They're just like, yes. Murphy Brown, mm, excellent program. I've addressed the greatest controversy in my vice president's remarks now. So please leave me alone to this radicchio salad. He does go out of his way to say, one thing that does concern me deeply is the fact that there are so many broken families in this country. Who broke them, George? What happens to a family when you send part of it to prison? I <laughs> In a way, he's roundly mocked for this, and it makes him look terrible. But what's really interesting is that this controversy, which is massive, right? Cover of Time, cover of Newsweek, cover of everything. It's great for the show. Hmm. When uh, Candace Bergen wins an Emmy six months later in September, she thanks Dan Quayle. Candace Bergen is like a wonderful dry champagne, and I adore yes. her. But what's interesting is, you know, the next couple months, there is an actual debate in the country hmm. about single mothers. Did Murphy Brown go too far? Basically, what it does is even though everybody hates Dan Quayle, everybody uses this controversy as a jumping off point to talk about, quote unquote, broken families and the institution of single motherhood. And in some ways, they are correct in hmm. that I found statistics on this that in 1949, there were 130,000 children born to unmarried mothers. Hmm. And by 1989, there were a million. Hmm. So that's a huge increase. That's partly because women stopped being seen as fallen if they had children out of wedlock. Well, this is the thing. There's a woman named Judith Stacy who writes a book called Brave New Families, mm -hmm. basically responding to this controversy and responding to the changing nature of the American family. That by 1990, one in four women who have babies are single. Wow. I mean, it's a genuine social phenomenon that there's far fewer traditional families in the country than there used to be. Yeah. The right basically sees all of these single mothers in themselves as a problem. Hmm. But then the left wing, like the scholars and the academics, point out that the real reason why there's so many more single mothers in America is because divorce got a lot easier. You used to have to establish residency in Nevada or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's this great quote from Judith Stacy. She's talking about Dan Quayle, and she says, Ignoring 20 years of economic decline, social neglect, and the erosion of public responsibility for collective needs, hmm. Mr. Quayle blames the greed, narcissism, and diversity of families for child <sighs> neglect. He laments the possibility that we're rearing the first generation of children whose psychological well-being is worse than that of their parents. <laughs> he fails to note, however, that these children are the first to be worse off economically than their own parents. So it's all a diversion. For It's a, it's a capitalist smokescreen, isn't it? It's literally, it's a, oh my God, what's that behind you? This is what so many people start pointing out is that it is true that children of single mothers have higher dropout rates and they get mm -hmm. lower grades and they're more likely to be arrested as teens and they're more likely to become teen. Like every way that you measure well-being of a person and success as a person, those statistics are almost all lower. Mm. And what Judith Stacy points out is that Dan Quayle wants to explain those poor outcomes uh. through the singleness of the moms. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the mother's decision mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to raise kids as a single mom that is causing 
their children uh -huh. to get lower grades, to have higher dropout rates, et cetera. And he's saying this is the only possible answer and not looking at what are the factors that correlate with single motherhood. Exactly. And what effects do those have on children? And also, what are the outcomes for rich single moms? Mm -hmm. None of those outcomes show up for rich single moms. Mm -hmm. So what they point out is that it's actually... Murphy Brown is not an example of a kid that's going to be deprived simply because their mom is single. That kid is going to be fine. The kid's going to have childcare. He's going to go to a good school. And he has a community of a whole kooky newsroom and a, <laughs> exactly. a painter who lives in the house and is working on a mural for years. And so if the outcomes for rich single moms aren't worse, then maybe it's not the singleness of the moms. Mm -hmm. Like maybe something else is causing the bad outcomes. Uh -huh. There's also a really good argument about whether or not TV has caused this. So mm -hmm. one of the things that Dan Quayle is blaming for sort of the decline of the traditional family is that TV shows glamorize single parents. There's a lot more single parents on TV. And that's actually true. But is that because TV is trying to represent real life or because real life is trying to represent TV? Well, this is the thing. I mean, in the 1950s, only 12% of TV families had single heads of household. Mm -hmm. And by the 1980s, it was 45% mm. of the families on TV had single parents. Yeah, I feel like that was pretty typical of, of yeah. the sitcoms that I grew up with. And that to me, I mean, I did not have a lot of friends whose parents were married to each other. Yeah. You know, that was just the world as it was. And the idea that like Murphy Brown is encouraging single motherhood by glamorizing it, it's like, I think it reveals a lot about what you think TV is for, because I know that this idea of, you know, if we depict wholesome families, then people will want to emulate those wholesome families. And that's why we do it. And it's like, so you think that people find their way through the world by looking at positive role models and then emulating that. And it doesn't matter what resources they're offered because it's they choose what they want to be and then they be that. And it's not right. that you have to give them the opportunities and the skills to do the thing that you want them to do or the thing yeah. that's healthiest for them. Yeah. But what's really interesting is it's actually true that there were more single parents on TV than there were in the U.S. population. However, the majority of the single parents on TV were men. It was all single dads. Right. Like Hello Larry. <laughs> exactly. When you talk about all of these single parents glamorizing single parents, it's like mostly dudes. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Full House. That was a show that was like oh, yeah. 45 single dads and 60 children. Totally. Yes. I found a list. My two dads, two single dads. I yes. mean, yeah. I mean, Hollywood was dad crazy, huh? Punky Brewster. <gasps> yeah. Silver Spoons, St. Elsewhere, Double Trouble, mm -hmm. Empty Nest, they also mentioned Baywatch. David Hasselhoff had a kid as a oh, single really? dad. Huh. And also they also mentioned Smurfs. Huh. And what's really interesting and what a lot of scholars have pointed out since then is that the real distortion of the family on TV is that the vast majority of TV families are harmonious. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> They've done studies on this. Yes, most families in real life are dysfunctional and scary exactly. in at least some regards. A lot of, there's a lot of divorced parents on TV sitcoms, but they never get divorced during the sitcom, right? It's always beforehand. Right. And they never sue each other and there's never a custody dispute that ends in kidnapping. Exactly. It's always like, you know, the Brady Bunch, right? It's like they're divorced parents or widowed parents, but they're back together. None of the heartbreak happens in the show. It's all before the show and everything is mm -hmm. all hunky-dory when the show is on. Right. So Mrs. Brady is arguably the first main character or maybe the first sitcom mom to be divorced, but we don't know mm -hmm. because they don't say what happened to her husband. Oh, yeah. They could have gotten divorced or he could have died. So I think it was like a soft intro to that idea. And that was right. in the late 60s. Right. And so there's more non-traditional families, but they're like happy families. Right. The argument, I guess, of like the Dan Quayles of the world would be <laughs> the problem is that you've got single parents and happy families, which gives the message that it's possible to be happy and raise well-adjusted kids in single-parent households. And, like, that is bad. Hmm. What do you think about that? Well, I think that that's really, to me, still missing the point because the problem is I don't think that the health of a family is decided by the configuration of adults or parental figures mm. in it. I think that it's decided by are these people emotionally healthy? Are they getting adequate financial and emotional resources? And are they not being asked to do an impossible amount of labor mm. in order to both support themselves financially and take care of their children? Right. And I think that, to me, the big issue is that in America, 
being a parent is incredibly difficult and there's no institutional support for you or almost yeah. none. And, you know, there's yeah. never daycare is incredibly expensive. Prenatal care is inaccessible for a huge number of women. Mm-hmm. America creates traumatized populations and trauma right. makes it harder to be a parent. Yes. We're a country that where it's incredibly hard to survive financially and emotionally. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a child without a partner to raise it with if you're capable of doing so. I just think that that's mm. something that people don't often have the luxury of choosing for themselves. Right. And right. the the reasons for people having inadequate resources for parenting are, I think, tied to factors that often also are the cause for, for, single, for people parenting as single parents. But mm. single parenting is not the ill from which those symptoms descend. It's the fact that American society does not support parents or families. Right. And what a lot of studies point out at the time is that all of these poor outcomes for the children of single parents don't show up in other countries, hmm. right? German single moms, their kids aren't going to jail at higher rates. I bet they're great. I want to be a German single mom when I grow up. Well, that's the thing. It's like, well, they have free health care and you get months off of work when you have a baby and there's free daycare. There's all these other supports in your life. And right. so... It's not that, like, the morals of American women have fallen during this point. No, we're all whores. It's whoredom. That's the problem. (laughs) Whores. It's always, it's not capitalism. It's whores. That would have been a shorter speech. (laughs) You know, one of the things that's really interesting is Dan Quayle and other people sort of in the Republican Party at the time, they keep talking about how support for traditional families is falling. And that's bad. And, you know, they're correct in that, you know, there's something called the Family Values Survey that I think mm-hmm. it's Gallup or somebody does every year. And they ask people about, you know, what do you think about drugs? What do you think about parenting? Whatever. In that data that they're using, there isn't evidence that there's more like 16-year-olds being like, I want to have a baby immediately. What it really <laughs> is, is there's less <laughs> intolerance for non-traditional families. Right. So we, we've lost our wonderful intolerance with which we keep people in line. How will people know the correct yes. way to behave unless they're being shamed continually? It's like there's falling social stigma against single parents who are, you know, <laughs> doing their best and trying their hardest. People are less likely to be ostracized now, and that's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, the more I think about it, it's like, why did we make fun of Dan Quayle for misspelling the word potato when we should have made fun of him for arguments like this one? Tagline, yes. Right. It's like, you know what the most memorable thing about this guy is? The way he thought the word potato was spelled. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, speaking of Dan Quayle's moral turpitude. I'd say moral vacuum more than anything. <laughs> Go on. After the speech, he doubles down. Oh, God. One of the things that they learn is that most of the country doesn't like this stuff. Most of the country doesn't love Dan Quayle. The Christian right loves it. Mm-hmm. So Dan Quayle's job in this campaign essentially becomes to go around to pro-life conferences, mm. to Southern Baptist conventions, and just give the same speech over and over again. So they're like, "We, it's, this is like his free bird. They're like, do the Murphy Brown speech. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, essentially, he tweaks the message a little bit over the months. Uh But this is where we get all this stuff about cultural elites, ivory towers. Mm -hmm. He goes to the Southern Baptist Convention, and -hmm. he talks about how traditional families are under attack. And he talks about how the Hollywood elite, they believe that moral truths are relative and all lifestyles are equal. They seem to think that the family is an arbitrary arrangement of people who decide to live under the same roof, that fathers are dispensable, and that parents need not be married or even opposite sexes. Would you like to talk about ways to make fathers better able at childcare? Because a lot of them don't do that, and they kind of are irrelevant to households in which they're right. either a dead weight or emotionally unhealthy. <sighs> this is my this yes. This is the sound I keep making when reading all this stuff. Yeah. It just he basically creates the values voter mm. in the next six months. Wow. So these are crucial times. It really is because what you see is that later on, this technique becomes the template for every future campaign. So what happens in this campaign, obviously they lose in 1992, as we know. Spoiler. But all of the research shows that the message was resonating, but the messenger wasn't. Okay. That basically, if Dan Quayle hadn't been so disliked by the American public, these messages would have worked. Mm -hmm. And this is what creates the Karl Rove strategy that we get in 2000, where you don't go after the median voter anymore. Mm -hmm. What you do is you go for the people 
that are going to vote for you anyway, and you try to boost turnout. And this is what Dan Quayle's little experiment in 1992 demonstrates, is that Mm -hmm. you have to find issues that will get them to turn out, right? So this is how we get gay marriage and abortion and all these other cultural, non-economic, non-bread-and-butter issues becoming central to mm-hmm. political campaigns. You can just see the kind the wheels turning for the GOP. It's like one of the first little political golems it made. And it was like, okay, that yeah. wasn't perfect, but that was a pretty good prototype, like 70%, better messenger yeah. next time. You know, we're totally. learning things. And of course, Clinton and Gore completely accept this framing. Mm-hmm. So there's been these academic analyses of what happened in the 1992 election. And what one researcher points out is that all of the rhetoric, Republican, Democrat, and Perot, have the same three assumptions. First, African Americans already have equal opportunities to get ahead. Sure. There's good black people and bad black people, and we have to punish the bad ones, and we have to lift up the good ones. There's never any mixing between the two. And we can lift up the good ones by destroying the lives of the quote-unquote bad ones. That's key. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... Black people who respond with anger to anything going on in their communities ever are completely vilified. And you can never get angry or else you reveal yourself as a monster or an animal. Yes. And these are the three assumptions, the three bipartisan messages that lead us to the end of affirmative action, welfare reform, super predators, all of this swirling bullshit solidifies into the next 20 years of political life. Wow. And so it was the first time that marriage was proposed as an anti-poverty plan. It was the first time the Republican National Convention used family values as a theme of one of the nights. Really? Yes. It's amazing how much we take for granted as bread and butter American politics is new, is like more recent than pretty woman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But this stuff was all constructed. And this is the prototype of a successful strategy. So I have this mental image of there's the sort of current Republican strategy that's like the, you know, Excalibur buried in the rock. Mm. And Dan Quayle is like the the pure fool who can pull the sword from the stone. Because <laughs> I can totally believe that he said all this in good faith. And you're like, you know, Dan Quayle, I don't believe you to be very good at reasoning. Like, sure, yeah. I believe that you believe this. It means that you shouldn't be holding public office. But like, if you were a private citizen who had these thoughts, you could be like, all right, you're completely missing the point, but I don't think you have the capacity to understand it. So just as long as you're not in charge of anything big and important, it should be fine. And unfortunately, he was the vice president. So yes, that's too bad. And so the last gasp of this... Murphy Brown had a beautiful baby. Well, there's that. (laughs) But then also, she does an episode six months later called Murphy's Revenge, where It's a pretty good idea, right? Because the name of the show is also the name of the main character. So they can use the footage of Mm. Dan Quayle criticizing Murphy Brown the show and pretend that it's him criticizing the newscaster, Murphy Brown. That's really smart. Wow. I love love that they did that. That's fun. It's very great. Yes. And so there's this whole thing where they're pretending that Dan Quayle criticized the newscaster for having a baby. And (laughs) Murphy Brown, of course, gives like a nice little clap back to all of this. And Mm -hmm. she says on the air on the show, Mm -hmm. these are difficult times for our country. And in searching for the causes of our social ills, we could choose to blame the media or the Congress or an administration that's been in power for 12 years, or we could blame me. (laughs) And Murphy Brown is the voice of reason in America in 1992. Finally. Although, of course, because all of this stuff about the LA riots has completely been forgotten at this point, it's all about sort of the attack on single mothers and like I, a wealthy newscaster, and perfectly within my rights to have a baby, which she is completely correct about. Mm-hmm. But they never really cover, like, urban poverty stuff. Yeah. Well, Murphy Brown was limited in its in its range, unfortunately. So when this episode airs in September, a couple months later, he goes to a hostel for single mothers, like a sort of charity organization for single mothers. So he mm-hmm. watches it there. And then, you know, he's trying to do, like, a photo op. He's trying to, like whatever, trying to like capture the moment back. It doesn't work, obviously, because it's super cynical. And then afterwards, he still stands by it. So afterwards, he's interviewed, what did you think of the episode? And he says, Hollywood doesn't get it. I was never criticizing single mothers. It's like, Dan, they literally played back footage of you to yourself. (laughs) Are you the guy from Memento? You know, I don't know. I wanted like a nice little epilogue for Dan Quayle that he like learned things. (laughs) Some of our people... 
don't learn stuff and, and that's okay. And, you know, they, he, I mean, what did he do? What happened? He now works at a private equity firm and he's on the company boards. Like he, you know, he did exactly what you would expect him to do. He also, did you know that he ran for president in 2000? Which I... Oh, yeah, I do remember that, actually. Out. He dropped out fairly early, right? He came in eighth Aww. in one of the early contests. I find it really interesting that Dan Quayle, eight years after leaving the White House, was like, I think that America wants more of Dan Quayle. Yeah. Like, knowing what his approval ratings had been and knowing what the experience had been like for him, he he went for it again. And you'd think that he would just fade into nothingness like a deadbeat dad. But he's kept coming back. (laughs) Like a stalker dad. (laughs) Yeah, that's about it. I mean, like I said, I dislike Dan Quayle a lot more than I used to. Yeah. I don't dislike him more, but I'm more saddened by all of the darkness that he brought into (laughs) our country's political arena. Yeah. It's really depressing to see the genesis of these extremely cynical arguments. Yes, it's like the opening of Alien where the, you know the fetus gets smuggled back into the ship and bursts out of someone's <laughs> chest and skitters away. You know, it's like, you're like, well, I don't think that's going in a good direction, but let's just try and, you know, calm down and, and recover for a while and see what it comes back as exactly. Yeah. So Dan Quayle and Lee Atwater were two of the primary engineers of the world we now live in. Yeah. Two guys who look like 45-year-old Boy Scouts. <laughs> Do you have any closing thoughts? What did you learn? I learned that Murphy Brown was framed. (laughs) Murphy Brown is innocent. I mean, this is the saddest thing about it is that I don't think it was a deliberate attempt to distract from the legacy of the L.A. riots, but that was the effect of it. Right. Because if you don't believe that it was because of systematic racism and and injustice and abuse and and police violence, then like you don't think it's cynical and terrible to, to focus on Murphy Brown, who you truly believe to be, you know, closer to the root problem. Right. And instead of talking about anything that actually explained the L.A. riots, we spent months in a debate about single parents generally. Yeah, he was criticizing single black mothers like a whole slice of humanity. And we were like, how dare you say that about the show that we watch? Exactly. Like, how dare you criticize this white, professional, six-figure income lady. It's like today if someone delivered a horrible speech about, you know, just violent and dangerous migrants and the caravan and the coyotes and so forth, and is like, and by the way, Game of Thrones is also a bad influence on our society (laughs) anyway. And people were like, how dare you say that about Game of Thrones, sir? (laughs) Like, that is the thing that we are revealing ourselves to be more attached to emotionally. Yeah. (laughs) 